FM в Ан-Арбор. Up next on WCBN, another hour of programming from our broadcast archive. Live programming will resume later this morning. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor today in the studio. I'm so ha- so happy to have Marcus Suzak here. Marcus, welcome to WCBN, and thanks for coming underground on a beautiful day. Oh, it's so <laughs> great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, and you're, you've been on a pretty much a two-week tour here in the States um, with your with your novel Bridge of Clay, mm-hmm. um, out in paper now with Knopf. Yeah, um, oh, it's been, it's what's, been yeah, nice what's the tour? no complaints. No, okay. you, know, okay. been, <laughs> you know, it's been a, it's it's always nice to come up here, and everyone's always friendly. So, uh, you know, but it's hard to be away from home, but it's uh, you know when you're meeting great people, and the, the hardest time is the two hours you get before. You have to like you have to do something like this. This is the best part. And so when you're thinking about things and you're going, oh geez, uh, so it's it's going to to meet readers that saves you, and uh, that's the best part about the job. And then after this moment, you're going to um, our our time here at the radio station. You're heading to Nicola's bookstore on the west side. Um, and will you be reading there, Marcus? It's about I think it's seven p.m. at Nicola's tonight. Usually, I just find it's always funny. I've always been nervous about reading in public. So I do read a little bit, but I always tell a story. And the story always lends itself then to the reading. And uh, and so I've always just found that people love stories and stories are what we're made of. And so I lately I've been telling a story about how I ruined Christmas in the Zuzak household in 1984. <laughs> and uh, it's all to do with an alarm clock and uh, Christmas specials on TV, you know, like the little drummer boy and Frosty the Snowman and the, the Christmas classic, the Flintstones Christmas. And, uh, and it's about how, how I, I really was desperate to watch those shows and, and I didn't, I got up before my alarm went off. And, uh, and that's what set a whole chain of disastrous events in action. So I'll probably tell that story. And then just that idea of how the worst things that happen to us or the chaos in our lives often give us our best stories. And, and I think that's probably what a lot of my writing is about anyway. So yeah, we'll see how we go tonight. Yeah. So Nicola is 7 p.m. Yeah. Tonight. I think so. Stories. <laughs> I just go a, where I'm told to go. A little bit. <laughs> I think that's where you're going. Michelle is, is here. It's Michelle Pernia will guide, where I'm going. guide you there. <laughs> and and you've got we've got Bridge of Clay on the table with us. Um, 
And so stories, you said uh, that paying attention to stories is something um, about like who we are, like our stories from our own family and history. When I was reading about you, you said this, not just momentarily (laughs) um, in the moment ago. Um, And, and paying attention to the stories like from our past and it, because that's how we have an idea of who we are as well. And that seems to be thoroughly throughout Bridge of Clay. Yeah, I'm really interested in that idea that we start becoming who we are long before we're even born. And uh, and if you're lucky enough, you'll start, you'll hear those stories. I mean, so I was like, I'm the youngest of four kids. And of course, that means people out there are going, oh, yeah, that's the, he's the spoiled one. And, uh, and I was. And uh, the way, but here's the thing, the thing with spoilt children is that it's like the first line of Anna Karenina, you know, that all happy families are alike, <laughs> but all unhappy, unhappy families are unique in their own way. And it's the same with spoilt kids, in, or at least according to them. In my case, I feel like I was spoilt because I didn't get my parents' attention when I was really little because they, I had all these older siblings, but I... I got to spend the most amount of time with them at an age that was actually meaningful to me, which was in my early teenage years when my sisters had moved out of home, my brother was off doing other things, and I'd go to work with my mum and I'd go on long bush work, walks with my dad and I'd say, oh, can you tell me the story about that guy, in your t- that crazy guy in your town, you know, who did all this, who did all those things and... Or I'd say to my mum, oh, tell me, tell me what it was like when you went to the bomb shelters in the, the middle of the night. In and, Austria. Uh, yeah. And in, so um, in my dad's case in Austria and my mum's case in Germany. And, and so and those stories, I thought one day I would write a 100-page novella, you know, or, or actually a, uh, a, a small biography about my mum growing up in Germany. And then it turned into a 580-page book. Uh, the book thief. Yeah, that I thought would sink without a trace. So uh shows you how much I know about the publishing industry and what will work and what won't. But uh, I just thought that no one would no one would buy that book and or that no um, cuz it's it wasn't the sort of book I thought I would pick up in a bookshop and uh and so that's why I always thank people who have read it and then given it to their friends to read. Because, uh, you know, and the joke I always say is that, you know, I thank you so much because, you know, I, I always imagine the friend says, well, what's the book about? And you say, well, it's set in Nazi Germany. It's narrated by death. Nearly everyone dies. <laughs> and it's 580 pages long. You'll love it. And, uh, and so I just did. And that's what freed me up to write it exactly how it needed to be written and uh and so it's sort of all these years later um it's kind of still here well and i remember um students telling me about it um i think probably soon after it came out maybe in 2005 or so Mm -hmm. um and and then even a year as you know as recent as a year ago um talking with minor and writing students and having them say this book is something that changed their lives as um as readers but as young writers like young young people wanting to write there's a little bit of a sense of all bets are off like with that book maybe that i just really let go of the idea of there being an audience so not thinking anyone's going to read it was was such an advantage 
it's sort of like all of a sudden you're 100 yards in front of where you would normally be. And, uh, and so that's what really allowed me to follow my vision completely. And, uh, and just the whole idea of having death as the narrator. Like you can't imagine that book without that now. And, uh, but, but how is that? So what was that like for Bridge of Clay then? Because then I, am, I, I imagine it would be almost impossible not to have a sense of readership. Mm. Um, yeah, it was the because, opposite. Yeah. It was the opposite where suddenly it was, oh, my God, people are actually going to read, people are definitely going to read this book um, because of the success of The Book Thief. And that was, I think, one of the reasons then why it took so long. And because uh, I had to, I think because all the time you're writing and even not to totally contradict myself now in what I said about the book thief is that even then for a long time, you're still trying to look after the potential reader and then, but you've got to cross a line. There's a line you cross where you say, all right, I've looked after you long enough. (laughs) Now you want to be a part of this book. You've got to come with me. And, uh, and I think one of the big hurdles with bridge of clay was that I think it took longer to reach that point took longer and then as you were drafting it Marcus yeah or? as I so I I basically I draft when I talk about I'm always writing the book as I hope it is going to be I don't go oh here's my first draft I'm just gonna throw this out there and then I'm gonna clean it all up and do a second draft I sort of so I was the sort of person in high school or university where I would do the essay the night before and I did one version and I would, and so I would make it everything as perfect as it could be as I went. And, uh, and I think that also held bridge of clay up. And, uh, in, in the case of the book thief, I was a bit more free flowing when I first started writing it, but what I had to come to terms with as well was that bridge of clay was never going to do what the book thief did. And like trying to recreate that kind of success is, you know, to use that sort of cliche of trying to catch lightning in a bottle. It's sort of like it's that book has some magic dust sprinkled over it that every time you think it's going to go away, it's like a cockroach, you know, it just sort of still survives. (laughs) It still survives. So that's actually what my wife says about me when people say, oh, geez, you know, if I go and do something, they say, is, does he, get, is he, he might get sick or something. She says, he's not going to get sick. He's like a cockroach. He can survive anything. And, uh, and, it's kind of, and in the case of The Book Thief, that's also sort of true. Every time I thought it would go away, something new would happen for it. You know, I mean, like there'd be a play or there'd be, you know, and, uh, or, or just little things would happen in its favour. And I always kind of knew Bridge of Clay wouldn't have that. And the other thing is that, the book thief always had this voice that was a very much a come with me voice, you know, very much, come on, you want to come a little bit further. Come on, you know you want to. Very whereas, charming. Whereas Bridge of Clay, that voice never suited that book. It was never going to have a voice. And even though I tried, I tried a lot early on to have that sort of, you know, a bit more of a sing, not a sing-song voice, but a that slightly more whimsical voice come on, come on. And it just didn't work with Bridge of Clay. And I was faking it. And so you want to have the right voice for the book so it feels true. And uh, which is what made me want to be a writer in the first place was that you're reading something that you know is made up, 
but you believe it when you're inside it. And I think getting to that point with Bridge of Clay just took that much longer, and that's okay too. Was So was Matthew, um, the oldest of the Dunbar boys in Bridge of Clay, was Matthew always the narrator, or had you tried on other narrators before deciding on Matthew? Yeah, so of course... I can tell you have done your research because I did, uh, or or at least intuitively, you know that I've pretty much tried everyone. There are five brothers. Every one of them except Clay was a potential narrator. Uh, even their mum from Beyond the Grave. Was, Penny was, was going to be one. But, and I thought I can't have so death we, as narrator. But why then, were you protecting Clay? Because you had plans mm, for him? Well, I think because... Well, I mean, obviously as a character. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think because Clay, to me, was always a really heroic character. And I thought I didn't want him to be big-noting himself. And also, I there was also this idea that Clay is also quite a silent character. He doesn't, you know, for the whole first part of the book, for the first 60 or 70 pages, he doesn't say anything. His first words come at the end of part one. And so it just didn't feel he smiles, natural. He listens. Yeah. And I just didn't, it just didn't ever feel natural for him to be the narrator for those two reasons. And, uh, but getting back to that idea of just who you're writing for and the audience and everything is, I remember reading through Bridge of Clay. It's the only book I've ever done this with where I read through it. Like I read through it first with my wife and then just with a couple of trusted colleagues. And, uh, and there was a point towards the end where I was reading, you know, and, and became, you know, and of course getting a bit emotional, like very emotional at the end. And one of the people I read through with said to me, so who is that that you're, you know, crying for as you read then. And who's that in your real life, you know? And I said, don't you get it? Like, it's it's not for anyone in my real life. It's for them. It's for them inside the book. And uh, that's who I'm writing for. And uh, so in this case, it was for Penny and Clay and all those brothers and, and their dad as well. And uh, that's the line you've really got to cross is that you're writing it for the people in the book because they're real to you when you're there. And that world that yeah. you've created and that you invite readers into. Yeah, and uh, and that to me was the the true magic of the world was when I was sixteen and and I, I wanted to be a writer because I was reading these I was reading books that I was reading books that suddenly I, I felt like I was a part of and that I was believing everything in them. And uh, what were those books? Can you remember? Well, I remember. I mean, the first. One was probably when I was 14, and I'd had that experience up to that point, but uh, but I remember reading S.E. Hinton's books, you know, The Outsiders, the outsiders. And, um, and especially Rumblefish, mm-hmm. especially in later years, uh, I think that's the one that really holds up as an adult as mm-hmm. well. I feel like that really slim novel is her masterpiece. So but you've reread them then, Marcus? Was- I, I reread all the books I love, and that's why... You know, there are all these so-called rules of writing uh, that people say, like there's you know, show, show, don't tell. You know, I remember worrying about that that rule once and saying to Tom McNeil, who is another writer, an American writer who I really admire, and uh, and and Laura McNeil as well. But I said to him, oh, I'm just worried about the show, don't he, he? And he just sort of did what you did. He said, he said, he just waved his arms and he just said, it's whatever you can get away with, <laughs> and and. Uh, but just, uh, 
Yeah, so I'm trying to think of where I was going with that. But um Well let's well let's take a yeah. short break and then sure. when we come back we'll pick See up, if I we'll can pick up the phrase. <laughs> exactly. Make it especially tricky. <laughs> Today on the program, Marcus Susak is here, Bridge of Clay, the book on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Gina Brandolino behind the glass. We've got Michelle Pernia as a studio audience. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. Marcus Suzak is here. Bridge of Clay, the book on the table with us. Marcus, thanks for picking songs for today's show. Mm-hmm. So pleasure. What? Tell us about this one. Why this one? So this song, it, it's just one that has never gone away, and uh, for me, and every now and again, I, I pull it out, and uh, and I I just I love that it's. It's a son talking to his mum and uh, mother, don't worry. I, and there's a, you know, the, it starts with I killed the last snake that lived in the creek bed and it's sort of saying I've done all of these things. I've done some things wrong. I've done a few things right. But then it finishes or the chorus finishes with the, with the line that, and forget, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, sons are like birds who fly upward over the mountain. And, uh, and to me... It, I'm always sort of looking for songs that suit a book I'm writing and uh, and it just really suited Bridge of Clay because there are five sons in that book and, you know, and their mum does die on them and uh, and I think there's that just idea of, you know, we're not okay but we're going to be okay and uh, and Clay is the one who sort of takes up that challenge out of you know Matthew the narrator and the eldest Dunbar boy does for a while but it's Clay who truly finishes the job and, so that's why I chose that song and and somehow manages to to find some kind of redemption for the family even the brothers the father the yeah um, there are there are sort of I I mean it, I don't want to make it sound too 
dark and depressing mm. because I, you know, I hope it's a book that's full of life as well and but, vividness uh, and but, and joy and yeah, but there are it's very sad too. Yeah, Marcus, there are, it is, and there are some uh, there are some really tough moments between these brothers as well, and you know, and especially for Clay, Clay. Clay and Matthew are the most alike. And it's funny because I nearly, you go through all these problems uh, as a writer that, you know, when people say, oh, you're a writer, you must have a great imagination. I say, I don't, I, don't. <laughs> I just have a lot of problems. And, uh, and the, your imagination lies in getting around those problems. And when the book was so big and unwieldy, I, I tried to cut it down to two brothers. I tried to have just Matthew and Clay but then that never lasted more than an hour. It's amazing how many failures you have writing a book, but it never lasted more than an hour because Matthew and Clay are too much alike. And, uh, and then so you need Rory, who's the really tough brother with the nickname of the human ball and chain. And then there's Henry, who's like the salesman brother. And there's Tommy, who collects the animals. And, uh, and I, needed, I needed all of those brothers because they're all different colours. And uh, so suddenly, whereas when it was just Matthew and Clay, everything was just the same colour because they were too, and you couldn't believe that they would own a mule. You know, you needed all the chaos of the other brothers for them and all these other um, household pets. They all needed to be there for there to be this sort of, you know, I wanted to write in a very organised way um, because that's how Matthew was trying to rein in that chaos. And, uh, and Clay is trying to deliver the family into, you know, a, uh, a a new state of happiness, I suppose, or not not so much happiness, but an, an acceptance of who they are, and that they 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 will ha of course have moments of happiness again, but also to bring them closer to their dad because he's the only one who knows what happened in the past between him, his dad, and and his mum, and uh, and uh, and all of the brothers are, are coming to learn the family story through Clay, who is the one who loves the stories. And I guess that's how Clay is most like me. And he's the, he's the, he's the kid in the family who loves his parents' stories and, uh, and, and loves the, the, the stories of the, of the brothers as well. But he's also the most silent. So he has to do everything the hard way. And, you know, I kind of like that. So, so Marcus... Speaking of the hard way, too, um, this I, I read in a, an article in The Guardian where I think you said you had an idea for this book, um, Bridge of Clay, when you were 20. Mm -hmm. And so and that idea never, never let go of you. What was yeah. that idea? Was it a mule named Achilles? Was it <laughs> or, or how did? Yeah. At 20 years of age, you thought of. Yeah. Some part of this book. I was I was walking around the suburb where I lived in where I lived in Sydney, and uh, it was a suburb I grew up in, and uh, and I just had an image of a boy building a bridge in my mind, and uh, and then and I immediately thought he and he wants to make it beautiful, and he wants to make it perfect. He wants it to be his one attempt at greatness, and. Uh, and and then of course the the next idea came, which was that well the only way to achieve any kind of greatness is to realise you can't, <laughs> and uh, at, but you've got to try anyway, and that's what's great. And uh, 
you know, so it's a more, you can only ever achieve a more humble version of greatness. And, uh, but then the next idea that came was that, was the boy's name. And every book needs that little bit of luck. And it's like the book thief needed the idea of using death as the narrator to really get me totally interested in writing it. And then the idea of a girl stealing books, like that was an idea I had for a girl stealing books in modern day Sydney. And I just thought, oh, maybe just throw that into that book set in Nazi Germany as well. And uh, in this case, it was the boy's name, which was always going to be Clayton. And uh, and it was going to be called Clayton's Bridge. And it was just going to be a sh- short story. But I can't write short stories. It, it helps to be not good at anything other than one thing. And... Uh, if you know, and people would also argue that I'm not that good at that either, you know, because everyone yeah, has their critics, on. you know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but it's, uh, but I. But why Clayton then? Like, or or what? And then it shortened pure, to Clay. Pure Definitely. luck, pure luck that I chose Clayton, and uh, and it was going to be called Clayton's. But if I if I'd named him Michael or David or yeah you know, anything, you know, it wouldn't have been the same, but it was Clayton. And then, so it was going to be Clayton's Bridge. And then again, I was what you don't normally get good ideas walking around town. That's when you think of your taxes and everything. You get your best ideas sitting down writing usually. But in this case, these two moments, I thought this time around, I thought, no, not Clay, not Clayton's Bridge. What about Bridge of Clay? And as soon as I thought that, as soon as I had that as the title, a whole new like level of depth uh, of emotion and uh, and just the 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 depth of the idea immediately changed because i thought it doesn't matter what he's making the bridge out of whether it's wood or stone it's going to be made of him and he's going to be building his life into this bridge and and in this case he's building the stories of his mum and dad into the bridge and then of course there's the idea that clay as a material and then clay as a name You've got those two ideas and clay as a material can be moulded into anything, but it needs fire to set it. And that was when I then saw the ending of the book, which I'm, and it's not a spoiler uh, because it doesn't exactly end this way, but I thought this is what he wants. He wants the river to actually flood and he wants to be able to walk along top of the flood water across the bridge. And so it's like an act of faith and will he fall into the water or will the bridge, the bridge truly holds. be great? Yeah, and and I thought, oh, and the sun's coming up, if and the sunrise is the fire in the water. So will he be set with, you know, because clay needs fire to set it. So will he be set with with that greatness or with failure? And that's what it was always leading to. But of course, then every time you write a book. It's also one of the, the really nice moments is you're going towards a moment and then you go, oh, it's not that, it's to the left of it or it's to the right or it's pulled up shorter or usually that very rarely goes longer, goes beyond the, that idea. But it's always a little surprise that, you know, uh, that you're not expecting as the writer of it that works at the end of the book. Why, and why is that important to you? Because can, I can tell that it is. Uh, I think it's just the... That's the, the surprise. I like think, we... yeah, the excitement of that. It's like even, you know, I know that tonight when, you know, I go to and do the book event, every time I'll get a reaction out of the audience is when the unexpected happens or they're slightly surprised or when something happens that shouldn't have happened exactly in that way. And so I think 
it's one of the things that we're we're hardwired to uh, is in storytelling and a love of storytelling is that we love being surprised and and that's not always in terms of plot. It can be just some. It can be a lovely your, line, yeah, a, a word image. choice, you know. And uh, and it's when I'm stuck. And it's when I think there's a sense of play then. And uh, and so I knew that I was getting closer to this book working when on the first page, like I changed the first. I've changed the opening completely from Matthew sitting on the roof of the Dunbar house to him sitting in the kitchen and uh and then i just that that changed everything because it felt warmer it, felt, it, felt, less, it feels right yeah and and because so much happens in that kitchen as well and uh but also i started i just wrote like one line there and this comes back to the rules again uh where matthew he said i went to an old i drove out to an old backyard in an old backyard of a town and there's that idea that in sentences you shouldn't really repeat things. And uh, and then I just thought, no, I love that repetition. And and then a few lines later, you know, and he says, I, I went to dig up this typewriter and uh, uh, that's in this old backyard. The old and, and, TW. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Clay has warned him already that he's got to get his measurements right or he might dig up a dead dog or a snake instead. And, uh, and he says, which, of course, I did. But he refers to it as... <laughs> Uh, pirateless treasure, and just again, there's that sense of play there, and and I think that's what I'm attracted to. Doing all that work for there to be a sort of sandpit to play in at the end of it. And and do you find that when you're you're sitting down when you're saying doing all that work, like the um, the parts of imagining because pieces of story, because you it sounds like at 20 years of age you had this image of the ending. You had your, your mm. main character who was going to deliver, right? Yeah. Um, but then... Yeah, 24 there was the years open... go by. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but there, and sometimes there's an idea or a, there's, a, like there's a line or a little um, moment in, in one of the, the sections where, it, it's talk, where Clay's birth is talked about when he's born and uh, and his mum always told him that the he came very quickly and the world had wanted him badly and the line was you know was it to hurt or and humiliate or to love and make great uh, even now it's hard to decide and uh, and that line was one of the first lines i wrote for the book and it sits in the dark and it sits in the dark for years, like decades. But you had it in a notebook. And yeah, so that I didn't write that when I was twenty, uh, but I wrote it when I first started uh, after the book thief, and so it sort of sat there for thirteen years waiting. And then you see it in the actual book, and you go, "Oh, it finally came into the light." Because the thirteen years that you mentioned, Marcus, is the time that you took when you were actually you brought you didn't give up on that idea that you had when you were twenty, and you you sat down and you started working towards Bridge of Clay? It was always the book I was most afraid of because I, I thought it was the biggest idea and the best, my best idea. And, uh, and, and so I would always put it off or I'd start it and I'd go, oh, no, too hard. And then I'd, I'd just write something in between, including The Book Thief. And I just went, oh, I'm going to write that book now. And then after The Book that Thief. Novella. That novella. Yes. <laughs> that short story. <laughs> and, uh, and then it just, uh, it was time to face it. And say, right, now you have to do it. And it always led to, you know, five years, six years, eight years, nine years. People would say, God, if you're struggling so much with this book, just write one of your other ideas. And I'd say, that's the problem. 
I haven't got any other ideas. This is the one. Yeah. This is the one. And it didn't... Well, let's take a short break and then we'll come back. We'll talk more about sure. Bridge of Clay, mm-hmm. this idea that wouldn't let go of Marcus Zusak. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Good afternoon. If you're just tuning in, um, welcome, because this is a good one. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, Marcus Zusak is here. Bridge of Clay, the book on the table with us. Um, thanks for picking the song. So we had a little piano then. Um, yeah. Piano is very key <laughs> um, to the Dunbar boys and their mother. Mm-hmm. It's funny that uh, there's a chapter called Piano Wars. And uh, and uh, I think it came from. I don't. I, it's really interesting where certain ideas come from, and there were. And as I was saying to you in the break, now that you know, I get a. Whenever you ask me something, it's like six answers come up. You know, so, and I don't know which one to grab hold of. And because I think, you know the book so well. Yeah, you know it so well. Thirteen years really working quite consistently on a book, and. Uh, and that's always funny then at the end when it's over. People say, God, you must be ecstatic. And then you say, no, I actually feel a bit miserable <laughs> because you, uh, how am you... I going to live without it now? Yeah, that's a that's a real thing. Mm. Are you and, through that yet or uh, how you, long did it did it or does it you, last for you? Yeah, then then you go surfing and and uh, you go, oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> and uh, and and so you but it, it always stays with you. It always stays with you, and and I think it's actually a healthy thing. Then when you start to forget lines from it, whereas I used to be able to pretty much recite. If you to, if you if you read a sentence aloud to me, uh, you know, a oh, year you... ago, I would be able to tell you what the next sentence was, and I probably can't now. And I think that's good. That means you're getting closer to writing something new and starting something new, and then you know. You know, I think you you just always write your next book to atone for the sins of the last one, and uh, and so, but in this case, I mean, with the piano, uh, it, it actually came from. Uh, there are always a few ideas back that lead to to something, and in this case, I realised that all the brothers in this book they all had nicknames, and and uh, even the slot you 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 meet some of their friends very early on in the book, but. They don't play any further part in the book, but they've all got nicknames too, and so and that made me think of a nickname for their mum, which was the the mistake maker, and 
I immediately saw a girl playing the piano in in Poland in Eastern Europe and that she was going to immigrate to Australia. And uh, and that's actually my wife is from Poland. She was six when she came to Australia and her parents made that big decision to flee communist Europe. And uh, and I saw her dad standing next to or sitting next to her yeah, and he would just hit her knuckles every time her hands dropped or she made a mistake, but not hard, just with but with a branch of a tree. And uh, and then I immediately saw him as sort of a statue of Stalin, like not Stalin himself, but people would liken him to a statue because he was so quiet and uh, you know hardly said anything. But but she but they, they have this really beautiful relationship actually, and and of course she feels terrible when he basically doesn't well he tricks her into leaving uh and uh and starting a new life and it turns out to be in sydney in australia and uh and of course there she's struck by the mauling light of the place and the the sun is like a and just these lines then start to come to you and uh where and that you know they're the ones you keep they're always the ones you keep the ones that you just feel straight away and so she gets to sydney and she says the sun was a barbarian, you know, a, a Viking in the sky, you know, and then you, you're playing again, and uh, and that's what uh, you know you, and so that's why I often talk about writing as it's like you're climbing a mountain, and there's all this hard work, but there's the promise of a sandpit at the top where you get to play with the words then, and that's when, but you don't get that without doing the work, usually, and uh, so then of course it's natural for Penny. Uh, for Penelope uh, to teach her sons the piano, and they say that's what really made us tough, is <laughs> that uh, you know, sitting with her at the piano, and she's, you know, and she's this really, you know, I actually had to make her do a few bad things in the book, yeah, you know, to to the boys, uh, you know, like to lose her temper with them, and there's one point where she throws her shoe down the hallway, and it cartwheels through the air and hits Henry in the in the mouth, and he actually swallows one of his teeth, and uh, and and that was just to toughen her up a bit so that she was less like a saint, and uh, and she needs to be tough. Well, to, to, yeah, to put up with five boys and, and then, to endure, yeah, and to endure getting sick and uh, and and all of all of those things, and also just to to start life in a new country where you can't really speak the language as as well, and uh, all of those things, and that was based on my mother in law. Just uh, see, I don't listen in on people's conversations, or I don't uh, not I don't, half. No. I don't, well, and I don't, and I don't writer. Sit, I don't, and I don't. Don't believe him, everyone. <laughs> I don't sit in cafes or anything and, and you know, watch people, but I know it when I see it, and I know it when I hear it, and and, uh, and that you want to. Yeah, the to, and to take it. I think the idea it. is that yeah, you're trying hard all the time when you're writing, uh, and but sometimes you. It's when you're trying hard enough, but not too hard, where things come to you. And I remember my mother-in-law saying to me, "God, I'd never seen. She'd never seen a cockroach before, until until she came to Sydney, and uh, and that it was so, so that becomes part of one of Penny's experiences. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and she also said that the, yeah. So the first thing she bought in Australia, the first two things were a pair of flip flops and a can of fly spray, <laughs> and. Uh, 
And but you know, and then on the flip side of that is, I said, God, what must that have been like? And uh, she said, I cried every day for the first six months. And uh, you know, and what it's like to get sunburnt. In, in a place like that for the first time and uh, to go to the beach and then the southerly comes and hits you and uh, you know and so you're sunburnt you got sand all you know in you know in your ears and all of these sorts of things and and so I it, it just stood to reason then that the, the and the piano was just this mainstay in that household that that was the one thing they all had to do and it was the one thing that she insisted upon and uh, and it toughened them up because then they got grief for that at school uh, <laughs> from all these you know tough boys and uh, and there is a moment again just sort of breaking the rules where I, and I had to break certain rules writing the book where so, there are two chapters where Matthew becomes the main character of the book. And uh, although they all have their turn in the light because we're all the sum of the people around us as well. And so when so we see Penny's story and we see Michael's story because they're a part of Clay's life. And there's also the story where Matthew is really getting picked on and beaten up a little bit at school because he plays... The, that they know he plays the piano by the boxer boy yeah and matthew has to face him and it was one of and and i mean and talking about that idea again of rule breaking there's just penny and michael are, at this point become quite politically incorrect and they just say right we're just going to have to teach you how to fight and uh, and they do they teach him how to fight and they buy boxing gloves and then that's how matthew stands up to the kid and you know and it's a, a little bit against everything that you hear nowadays about okay we've got to we've got to deal with this in the the appropriate way and sometimes we have to be a bit inappropriate and uh and Matthew does does what you know and he doesn't win uh but he but he 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 shows he does show a you know, a toughness and fortitude in that moment. And as often happens, you know, as in my experience of being a kid as well, that then he and the kid who are picking on him all the time sort of become quite good friends. And uh, But it's just a part of the book that was necessary uh, for to just to show what that family life was like. And, uh, and you know, just the chaos of, of growing up and, and that, you know, as Matthew says, you know, it wasn't our mum dying and our dad leaving that made us tough. We were tough long before that. It was the piano that did it. <laughs> right, right. And I love how you can quote this, Marcus. So it's so it's interesting because as you're you're saying these these parts, like this is this is no small book as well. This like it it's it's longer. It's about the book thief size, yeah. Is it? I think. Oh, it's how I read it then. It's because I've dog-eared some pages no 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 not at all um but it's interesting because um as the writer you have very there's intentionality about these moments that are included like it's all doing work it it's not as if it's like a flight of fancy or you you're kind of uh oh i like how this sounds so i'm going Mm. to keep it here or um this backstory is not it's not a tangent. It's it's to, there's work for it. Yeah, and uh, I mean I'm so so grateful that you've brought that up because that's the one thing that I can say. I mean I see faults in everything I've written, and especially in this because I'm closest to Bridge of Clay at the moment, and I tend to spend the first couple of years after a book comes out apologising for it. But the one thing I don't apologise for in Bridge of Clay. Well, there are a few things really, but one is that every word in it is deliberate. 
every word is there for a reason and has been considered. And even just that idea of what you talked about, that something is, it may seem like a tangent or a, or a fancy, but it's, it is there for a reason. It's like when Clay, the example I usually use is that when Clay leaves his brothers to go and build the bridge with their father, who has come back into their lives or at least, or invites them back into his life, uh, Clay's the only one who leaves and he collects little symbols of all of his brothers. And the the one, okay, I can I'll, I can talk about two. One is he takes a feather from the, from Tommy's pigeon, and the the use of language there is very deliberate. And it says he snaps at the pigeon's neck and pulls a feather out. Now, the editors who worked on the book, each one said, "Oh my God, I thought he killed the pigeon," and it's a and it's just a little moment, and it's deliberately done because it's actually showing the reader. You don't know quite what Clay is capable of. And the other thing that Clay takes is the Monopoly iron. Yes, uh, which was – that was Rory's, right? It is Rory's. And, uh, and, and thank you for recognising that because you don't find out till 300 pages later <laughs> why he took the Monopoly iron. And, but There's that, a lot like that in here. Yeah, in Bridge of Clay. And, it's, and it's sort of like that's how our lives are. We sort of – we don't – I mean, we live in a world now where we want to know everything straight away. And you only go to the airport and you see everyone's looking at their phone. Everyone's finding everything out now. And, uh, and whereas I feel like novels are one of the last frontiers of having to wait for a story to unfold properly. And that moment where we find out where the iron comes from is the moment in the book. Is one of the, it's the first moment in the book where we really see Rory break. And... Uh, and we see how much he loves Penny and his brothers and that family, and uh, and it's a really important moment in the in the book. And with the mother, with Penny, and with loss. I can. Uh, I know you wanted me to read, so I can after the whatever break there is, I can read that video. I'll, I'll find it pretty easily. Let's, but it's totally up to you. Let's do it. We'll take a really short break. We'll be back today on Living Writers. Marcus Zuzak is here. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. <laughs> Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Marcus Zusak is here. Bridge of Clay, the book on the table with us. We've also got the book Thief here um, for for luck as well. Um, and because it's, it's a really lovely edition here. Marcus, will you read for us then? Let's get to this prose of yours. <laughs> okay, so I haven't read this for a while, so we'll see how we go. This is from... A Monopoly game in the kitchen, and the chapter is appropriately titled Merchants and Swindlers. It was originally called The Night I Ate the Iron, and uh, or The Night Matthew Ate the Iron, and uh, 
but I there was a bit it was too much like another chapter heading. So uh, so this is the Dunbar family. But I ben, love that new heading even more. Merchants and yeah, swindlers, yeah. yeah. And uh, but yeah, so their mum is dying at this stage, and uh, we're seeing it towards the end of the book. And uh, and they're playing Monopoly in the kitchen. She's in the lounge room with their dad. So this is how it goes. One of the best nights was late in February, nearly 24 months in total to her sickness, when a voice arrived in the kitchen. It was hot and very humid. Even dishes on the rack were sweating, which meant a perfect night for Monopoly. Our parents were in the lounge room watching TV. I was the top hat, Henry the car, Tommy the dog, Clay the thimble. Rory, as always, was the iron which was the closest he'd actually get to using one. And he was winning and rubbing it in. Rory knew I hated cheaters and gloaters more than anything. And he was doing both, way out in front, rummaging everyone's hair each time we had to pay him till a few hours in, it started. Oi, that was me. What? That was Rory. You rolled nine but moved ten. Henry rubbed his hands together. This was going to be great. (laughs) Ten? What the hell are you talking about? Look, you were there, right? Leicester Square. So get your ironing... Get your ironing backside, back one spot to my railway and fork out 25. Rory was incredulous. It was ten. I rolled ten. If you don't go back, I'm taking the iron and ejecting you from the game. Ejecting me? We sweated like merchants and swindlers and Rory struck out at himself for a change, a palm through the wire of his hair. His hands were already so hard by then, those eyes gone even harder. He smiled like danger toward me now. You're joking, he said. You're kidding. But I had to see it through. Do I look like I'm goddamn joking, Rory? This is crazy. Right, that's it. I reached for the iron, but not before Rory had his greasy, sweaty fingers on it too, and we fought it out. No, we pinched it out, till coughing was heard from the lounge room. We stopped. Rory let go. Henry went to see, and when he came back in with a nod of OK, he said, Right, where were we then? Tommy. The iron. Henry. Oh, yeah, perfect. Where is it? I was deadpan. Gone. Rory searched the board in a frenzy. Where? Now even deader pan. I ate it. No way. Disbelief. He shouted. You gotta be kidding me. He started to stand, but Clay in the corner silenced him. He did, he said. I saw him. Henry was thrilled. What? Really? Clay nodded. Like a painkiller. What? Down the hatch? He burst forth with loud-mouthed laughter, blonde in the white-blonde kitchen, as Rory turned fast to face him. I'd shut up if I were you, Henry. And he paused for a moment, then went out back and returned with a rusty nail. He slammed it down on the proper square, paid his money and glared at me. There, you dirty bastard. Go try swallowing that. But of course, I didn't have to. For when the game started up again and Tommy rolled the dice, we heard the voice from the adjoining room. It was Penny, part gone, part alive. Hey, Rory? Silence. We all stopped. Yeah? And looking back, I love the way he called that now, how he stood and was ready to go to her, to carry her or die for her if he had, sorry, if he had to, like the Greeks when called to arms. And the rest of us sat. We were statue-like. We were stilled and remained alert. 
God, that kitchen and its heat and the dishes all looking nervous and the voice came stumbling forward. It was on the board between us. Check his shirt. We felt her smiling. Left pocket. And I had to let him. I let him reach over and in. I should give you a nipple cripple while I'm at it, he said. But soon he'd managed to find it. His hand reached in, he produced the iron, and he shook his head and kissed it, tough lips on silver token. Then he took it and stood in the doorway, and he was roary and just young and untough for a moment, the metal gone soft in an instant. He smiled and shouted his innocence, his voice gone up to the ceiling. Matthew's bloody cheating again, Penny! And the house all around us was shaking, and Rory was shaking with it. But soon he came back to the table and placed the iron on top of my railway, then gave me a look that fell at me, then at Tommy and Henry and Clay. He was the boy with the scrap metal eyes. He cared nothing at all for anything. But that look, so afraid, so despairing, and the words like a boy in pieces. What'll we do without her, Matthew? What the hell are we supposed to do? And so that's, uh, that's Rory Dunbar and the story of the iron and why it's important to Clay and why he steals it when he leaves to build the bridge. Thanks, Marcus. Sorry, that was felt a bit long. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It's, it, that's one, it's one of those moments where you, you feel the sadness because you've been, at that point in the book, you've been along with the Dunbar brothers through so much. And to see this part of Rory, I think. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I had to cut out a fair bit of swearing too, I just realized. <laughs> not, not that it was that terrible, but, you know, it's, uh, that's part of the Dunbar household a little bit. But, uh, but it's, uh, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a roughness and toughness to those boys, but there's a really good heart uh, to them as well. And, uh, and it, it's, it's interesting too because I haven't read – normally I don't get – that's what's great about – talking to you is that I could just read a different part than I normally do. And, uh, and so thank you, you know, thanks for oh, making me thanks. feel that comfortable. Oh, thank you, Marcus. Thanks. Could we talk? We don't have many, we don't have much time left. Yep. Um, could we talk about how you decided to structure the book? Because it's a, it's a book of stories as well, right? Mm-hmm. We have Penny's stories. We have Michael's stories, his growing up, um, Clay and Carrie. Um, there's we have so many stories. Um, oh, and so little time to talk about it. Um, I, can, I can be quick. <laughs> but the structure. How did mm-hmm. you decide to move back and forth, and why was that? And was it always part of your vision for Bridge of Clay? I think I did the. the so the the structure. There's a lot of water in the book. And and it's even said that Penny came from a watery wilderness, and uh, she crossed oceans to come, you know, to to live where she ended up living. And so I wanted the structure to be kind of tidal, uh, where you've got Clay going out on the tide to do what he needs to do, but you've got the history of the Dunbars coming in on the tide, and it's and then those two tides actually meet at the very end, and we see what. Clay's wound is really, and what the past has given him, and uh, and so there was that idea. There was the idea of water being real, and that was why I had the past and present structure. The other reason was that I needed Clay in the book at the beginning, 
because there would have been 150 pages without of Penny and Michael before Clay even entered the book. And, and it, it felt, I mean, maybe I should have done it that way, but it would have been interesting to have the main character of the book not arrive until 200 pa- uh, 150 pages in. Next book, next book. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But the other thing too was I wanted it to feel like it was building all the time. And that's why you have part one, is called Cities, but part two is called Cities plus Waters. It's not just called Waters. And then to the end where we have Cities plus Waters plus Criminals plus Archers and so on, and that was Clay building the bridge, but also that idea that we carry our stories with us. So he doesn't just, you know, we don't just finish Cities and then there is no more City. There is the life of the brothers in the city that Clay carries with him when he goes to build the bridge. And same with the waters he brings back with him. And uh, and so that was why I structured it the way I did. And it felt like to me, getting back to the, the idea of whatever you can get away with, it's whatever gets you over the line. And uh, it was the only way I could write the book. And that's how you know it's the right way. And so you wrote it that way. When you were drafting it, you yourself as the writer and creator, Mm -hmm. as you were making this, you moved back and forth. I did most of the time. Sometimes I would write three or four chapters of the past or if there were short chapters, like so if there were like so sometimes there are some very short chapters, mostly that are in the present uh, as Clay moves forward building the bridge. And uh, sometimes I would write five or six of those, you know, and some of them didn't make it into the book either, uh, of, you know, just very short chapters. And uh, and so I could write, but then I'd, I'd put them together and I would read through them all past, present, past, present as it goes. So uh, that's how the book worked. And that's and you would read through it, and it sounds like you would also read it aloud too to find. I did, and it's the, funny. Like one of my path. criticisms of me reading now, of that reading I did now, I didn't quite find the rhythm that I usually read in. The book is written in a very specific rhythm, and uh, and it's almost like a it, there's this almost like a river that runs through the book, and uh, and it does go either side of that, but then it comes back to it, and. Uh, and it's there in the first sentence, you know, of in the beginning, there was one murderer, one mule and one boy, but this isn't the beginning. It's before it. It's me. And I'm Matthew. And here I am in the kitchen, in the night, the old river mouth of light, and I'm punching and punching away, you know, and it's a, it always sort of returns to that. And uh, even if there are very, there are a lot of short sentences, but it's always in that kind of rhythm. So all these things going through your head at once, you know, it's, uh, it's, but it's the beauty of being a writer. And I think writing, one of the things I love about it is it's the sort of job that's always testing how much you really want it. And, uh, and Bridge of Clay for me was probably the ultimate test because of, uh, you know, it being the challenge that it was. Thanks for talking today, Marcus Suzak. Marcus, come back anytime. Oh, T, it was such a pleasure. I could have talked to you all, all day and night, so thank we'll, you. We'll have a part two one day. I hope so. Marcus Suzak, the book Bridge of Clay. Um, thanks for listening, everyone out there. Thanks to Gina. Thanks to Michelle Pernia. Thanks to Frank Uli for post-production. George Cooper and Home George for the theme song. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.